Hey there, friends, and welcome to episode 203 of Just the Zoo of Us. This week, I'm joined by a marine biologist and artist with a passion for cephalopods to review the mind-blowing rogues of the sea cuttlefish. We discuss RNA editing, cephalopod brains, how cuttlefish are able to change their skin in the blink of an eye, use deception and disguise to win over mates, and how connecting with nature inspires art and innovation that makes the whole world a better place. Just the Zoo of Us presents Cuttlefish with Meg Minlin. It's Ellen Weatherford with your favorite animal review podcast, Just the Zoo of Us. I'm so excited this week to be talking to a brand new friend. This is Meg Minlin. Say hi, Meg. Hi. (laughs) Meg, what are your pronouns real quick? My pronouns are she, they. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be talking to you because I've been following you on social media for a while. You're very funny. (laughs) Also very, uh, have this just very clear and contagious enthusiasm for marine invertebrates, which I don't think get as much hype as they should. So I think we can, we can fix that a little bit today. Meg, what kind of work do you do with these squiggly dudes in the water? Yeah, so I am currently a graduate student at Walla Walla University in Eastern Washington, and I study octopuses and their ability to RNA edit. What is RNA edit? What does that mean? So instead of like most individuals that they edit their DNA and evolve through like random mutation, octopuses are actually, and cephalopods in general, um, are actually editing their RNA instead of their DNA. Am I remembering it correctly that RNA is like the messenger that translates the DNA? Yeah, that's like one type of RNA. Basically, the central dogma of biology, um, you have DNA to RNA to protein. The RNA is almost like the middleman between like the DNA and the protein. It is the middleman. And so instead of cephalopods editing their DNA, they're editing their RNA. And so those edits will actually get like made in real time. Like you can see changes in a protein in just like 24 hours. Um, And so we think they're doing this for basically like environmental acclimation because so far we've learned that the edits are being triggered with changes in temperature. But it's like a very new field of study. So like this was just discovered in like 2016, 2017. So there's still like a lot that we don't know, which is why I think it's really cool. Not only that they're editing their RNA, but just that like it's a very new area of research. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting, like, example of our scientific knowledge, like, always being challenged by learning new things, right? Like, expecting everything to kind of work the same way. And then you find this rogue group of weirdos who are like, actually, I'm going to do it a completely different way that nobody thinks I should be able to do. Yes, exactly. 
Really? That's why I love it so much because it's so different from us, but yet they've like ended up at not the exact same ending, but they have a lot of like similar traits to us and similar intelligence. And you know, everybody loves octopuses and cephalopods because they feel like, you know, there's some sort of connection. Like people are always like, oh, you look in their eyes and like you can almost feel them looking back, like that sort of thing. We kind of humanize it a lot, but like, you know, people can see a lot of similarities and they got those similarities in a completely different way because they separated from us like 500 million years ago. Like we're vertebrates, they're invertebrates, like we're two completely different things, but we ended up at sort of similar endings. A game recognizes game. Yes! (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. Where did your relationship with these like marine invertebrates start? Like, were you kind of an octopus kid? (laughs) Was this something that like a love that developed later in life? Like, what has your journey been like to where you are with these cool sea creatures? So I was not an octopus kid, which I think bursts a lot of people's bubbles. Um, I was a shark kid. I was betrayal. Absolute betrayal. (laughs) I know. Absolute betrayal. I spent all my summers in Florida living with my grandparents. Um, and so I fell in love with sharks because I could uh, hunt for shark teeth in Florida. Like you just go in the sand and they're everywhere. So I got really, really into sharks. And then it wasn't until maybe like... I was seven or eight and I, you know, was a little kid on YouTube at too young of an age. Same. (laughs) (laughs) I found cephalopod videos that like Roger Hanlon, who is like the cephalopod behavioralist dude, um, he's retired now, but he's like a big name in the cephalopod field and he would upload all of his lab videos to YouTube. And so I would just scroll through all these videos of squid doing things and then eventually like found documentaries of octopuses and things like that. And it was just like all downhill from there. What was the journey like from like there to working with them sort of professionally and academically? I never really thought that I was going to like work with them. I was just like very interested in them. I always, everybody always thought I was going to be an artist growing up. And I also thought I was going to be an artist. And then I got to high school and I took APR and it burnt me out like crazy. And I no longer wanted to have anything to do with art. So like senior year when I was applying to colleges and things like that, I didn't want to go to art school like everybody wanted me to. And I said like, all right, screw it. I'm just going to apply to a bunch of like marine biology programs because the only other thing I liked besides art was the ocean. And then I ended up at UC Santa Cruz for a marine biology major. I took like my like very first intro to molecular biology class and I fell in love with molecular biology and like genetics. And I switched my major to molecular bio and like kind of abandoned marine biology for the time being in my undergrad and I studied RNA and so I got really into RNA. And that was also the same time that Josh Rosenthal's RNA editing paper came out where they first discovered that cephalopods are RNA editing and then I was like okay I'm fully going this RNA editing route I'm in an RNA lab in grad school you know I'll do cephalopods but I'm gonna do RNA editing instead of like I want to do genomics and like uh, taxonomy stuff originally and so yeah it wasn't until grad school right now that I actually got to have firsthand experience with octopuses. I feel like especially coming in from like a creative and artistic background, I feel like the entire cephalopod group really lends itself to like, you see so much artistic like inspiration in cephalopods. Oh, yeah. And like so many of the other cephalopod scientists are also artists, which I love dearly. I think it's just because there's such a like 
curiosity and creative like little species that like you can't help but want to like draw them and doodle them like I started out loving them because they were like my like homework doodles like all over the side of my page I drew little octopuses and cuttlefish (laughs) and like they're just so fun to draw like I I don't know if it's just like the creativity of the field that it's such a new field that it kind of brings creatives to it because you know you need creatives to make like new discoveries or if it's just that they're just so dang cool And like, I don't know, that just attracted all the artsy scientists. You know, those like Zen tangles that people will do where they just like draw like a pattern or something all over like a big page or something. That feels like when you look at octopus tentacles, that's what it kind of reminds me of. Oh, yeah. No, I was like the kid that drew like squiggly like arms and tentacles over all my pages. Like anything you saw of mine, there was an octopus arm on it. Like, and I drew them all like just as entangles. Like I'd cover like the whole page with them. They're just so easy and like fun to doodle. As incredible and inspirational as octopuses are, they aren't the only cephalopod that they're like hypnotic almost to watch and for me i really feel this strongly with the animal that we're talking about today which are cuttlefish i am so hypnotized (laughs) by cuttlefish (laughs) so for people that are listening that maybe aren't very familiar with them could you introduce us to cuttlefish a little bit yeah i can introduce you to cuttlefish so cuttlefish are part of the class cephalopoda cephalopoda composes nautilus squid octopus and cuttlefish And cuttlefish and squid are actually more closely related than octopus. We called them the decapodiformes, and octopus is the octopodiformes. And then nautilus is just something completely separate, um, nautilidae. And so cuttlefish and squid, they both have cylindrical bodies um, where the octopus kind of is more blobby. You know, they got their big mantle head that's all squishy. They got their little eyes and then like coming out of their face are their eight arms. They're the hamburger style to the squid's hot dog style. Hot dog style. (laughs) That's a really great way to describe it. Octopus are definitely hamburger style and cuttlefish are definitely (laughs) hot dog style. So they still have like the same basis of like, you know, their arms are coming out of their head, but their body is more like tapered and it has more structure to them. And that's partly because they actually still have like a hard part in their body where the octopus has completely lost all of its shell. Um, Squid has a little bit and then cuttlefish has the most. They have a cuddle bone and that gives them like firmness to their body that octopuses don't have. They have like a little fin that goes around their body that they use for swimming. It's like a skirt. Like a little skirt. Yeah, that they just have. it is like a little skirt. Like a little Marilyn Monroe moment. Like the air hits it and it frills on the sides. It's all ruffly and they definitely work it a little bit too. You can see oh, them twirl a little it. bit. They totally work it. They know that they're slaying. Like 500%. People who own birds are probably familiar with the word cuddle bone. Is this the same yes. cuddle bone that you can get at a pet store for your birds? I think it's pretty much the same. I don't know if they've like made a replication. I'm pretty sure it's the exact same thing. Yeah. Birds feed on it for the calcium. Yeah. When I worked at a pet store, you know, we sold these little cuddle bones all the time. And it wasn't until like years later that I realized that the cuddle part was like because they're from cuttlefish and I was like retroactively mortified. I wonder what like the trade is like because, you know, Nautilus have that huge tray for their shell that is like really destroying the Nautilus population. But does Mm. cuttlefish have like a huge tray for their cuddle bone? 
Hi there, it's me editing this episode. I looked it up. Cuttle bones are harvested as a byproduct of the fishing industry. So when cuttlefish are caught for food, the cuttle bone that would otherwise be thrown out is instead sold as a calcium supplement. Cuttlefish are not harvested for their cuttle bones, so if you do use them, no need to feel bad. Okay, back to it. Or do they just collect them when they die? Because they got short lifespans. Oh, do they really? Yeah. So all cephalopods have pretty short lifespans, about like one to two years. Octopuses, like the giant Pacific octopus, can maybe get up to five years. But most of them are just like one to two. For animals that get so complex and that have like such incredible like sensory input and like brain processing that they have such like a a short little life it's like they're condensing so much life and experience into a short amount of time I know. And it's just, it's really crazy. And they're really kind of just like born out of the egg, alive, learn, like they don't really, they do learn as they go on, but they've like already have experienced so much, it seems like by the time that they hatch. And a lot of that has to do with like their development. So while they're in the egg still, they're still like processing information and their environment and that's aiding their development. Are they really? Can they, like, detect the world outside of their egg? Yeah, 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 they can. They even did a study, I think, in cuttlefish where they did different prey types that were exposed to the eggs while the cuttlefish were developing. And that (sighs) prey type that was most exposed was the prey that they went after. Are you joking? That (laughs) is wild. (laughs) So they're, like, learning while they're in the egg. So that is, like, a crucial part of their development. It's kind of funny to me that they're like, okay, guys, we only have a very limited amount of time. Like the clock is ticking. Ticking. (laughs) We need to be utilizing as much of our time on this planet as we possibly can. I mean, it's really, I mean, that's like the whole like evolutionary lifestyle. We're like hatched. We got to reproduce and then we got to give birth and then we die. You better hit the ground running. You got to hit the ground running. (laughs) So there are a lot of different species of cuttlefish, right? There's like the kind of the common one, which is like a little white blobby with brown stripes. Mm -hmm. I was just fawning over these flamboyant cuttlefish that I saw. I've seen in a lot of different aquariums. My goodness, are they a sight to behold. (laughs) They are just the cutest little things in the world. And I think what makes them even cuter is that like cuttlefish in general tend to stay near the seafloor. You know, they're like reef dwelling species, they shallow water, you know, they're not going very far. But flamboyant cuttlefish actually uh, lost their like buoyancy device. So they're not as buoyant as other cuttlefish. So they literally have to stay on the seafloor, which makes them use uh, two of their little arms as like little legs. And they use like their little papillae, like their little spiky little papillae on their butt to like also walk which like you just see a little walking cuttlefish strutting along the sea floor and you're like that is the cutest thing i've ever seen in my life and not only is it incredibly cute and endearing but it feels so jarring to see a creature that is so like you mentioned earlier like diverged from us 500 million years ago so anatomically unlike us in every conceivable way and yet they do the same sort of like ambulatory motion, like the like yeah. walking one foot in front of the other in like a very oh, yeah. oddly familiar way. It's bizarre. <laughs> oh, no, for real. Even just like, I mean, off the topic of cuttlefish, because I interact with octopuses the most, but like even just like I put my arm in my octopus tank or I'm like looking at them and like watching them. I'm like, this dude is perceiving me. He knows exactly what I'm doing. He's watching me. He's learning. And it's just so 
freaky. <laughs> You're like, I'm getting red. <laughs> I know. For real. Like, oh my God. They're just such little, totally every single one has their own little personality. It's so I feel wild. insecure for a second. I'm like, are you judging me? What is happening? No, they're totally judging me. They're so hardcore judging me. Especially ruby octopuses, which are what we work with. They are the judgiest little octopuses ever. Like, I don't think I've met a judgier cephalopod. <laughs> Good for them. Rightfully so, right? Rightfully so. They should be judgy. I'm keeping them in a little Tupperware container so I can, like, do a little experiment about them and then release them in the wild. And they just had a fun little vacation. You should be judgy. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, what we do is review animals by rating them out of 10 in different categories. And the first one is effectiveness, which is just physical adaptations, things that are built into the animal's body that let them do a good job of the things they're trying to do, whether it's catch their food, not become food themselves, things like that. For cuttlefish, you know, since there are these tiny little predators that live in the ocean and they have a lot to compete against, they have a lot to protect themselves from. Meg, what do you give cuttlefish out of 10 for effectiveness? I give them a 10. You know, I am biased, (laughs) but listen, they've been around for a really long time. They've survived five mass extinctions. Like, they are so well built for their environment. And they're little. And they're little. And there's so many big things. And they're scary. Like, you see an Australian giant cuttlefish? That thing is scary. And the little, have you seen their passing cloud thing where they make, like, the waves move on their body? This is an insane (laughs) thing to me because... There are a lot of animals that can kind of like maybe change their color a little bit in the moment, right? You've got like chameleons or like lizards or something, but it is like a gradual thing and it's usually all over their body, right? Like their whole body will change certain colors. But with cuttlefish, you see them so precisely target. Like, I want just this part of my body to change color completely in, like, half a second flat. Oh, yeah. They can do it, like, in the blink of an eye. Like, it's absolutely wild. So I was watching these flamboyant cuttlefish at the aquarium the other day doing this, like you mentioned, like, this passing shadow over their body. But, Mm -hmm. like, it's not just that, right? Like, they're also, like, changing the shape of their skin. Yeah, so they can change the color and the texture. When we're talking about passing cloud, it's like a really intricate, like brain heavy thing that they're doing because in their skin, they have a couple different types of, some of them are organs, some of them are proteins that are like layered on top of each other that all give this big effect. And so the main one is like their chromatophores, which is like a little ball of ink that expands or constricts. So if it expands, you want to fill the color, constrict, show no color. And then each one of those chromatophores is actually like directly like wired to their brain. So everything can happen really fast. And part of that is because their nervous system is very widespread. So they have like whole body control without actually having to like relay signals back to their main brain. And so this allows them to do that crazy color change. And it's a really complicated process that we don't fully understand either, which is kind of more intriguing that we don't really know how they're doing this. And then on top of the color change, they can actually change the texture of their skin by stacking skin cells on top of each other. And that's what we call their papillae. And they actually have specific spots where they can actually stack the skin cells. So it's not like they can do it anywhere, but like some animals have a way more, they can get really spiky. Um, so it's still like insanely cool to see. So they're doing this passing cloud technique, which is basically just like 
changing like the chromatophores and then their iridophores which are like responsible for their shiny colors and then they also have leucophores which are like light reflectors um, and some other cephalopods have photophores which like create light so all of these different types of cells and organs are all working together with this really complex like muscle muscular structure and then also like nerve structure that is coordinating all of these little type of cells to make this really crazy pattern. So it takes a lot of brain power and it's super impressive. If you think about chameleons, it, it takes them a while to like change color, but cephalopods do it in the blink of an eye. And that's like really a huge advantage that they have over other species. Is this something that they're using against their prey or is it something to like protect themselves? Like what is it, what are they doing this for? It's both. So passing cloud where they have like these waves going over themselves, they use that to like confuse prey, which like kind of like stuns them because the prey is like oh my god what the heck am I looking at but they can also use it to like intimidate other like potential rivals for reproduction and mating and then on top of that they can also use it to like camouflage themselves and hide to their background now you mentioned that the flamboyant cuttlefish has lost their buoyancy so they stay down on the like the floor of the ocean and I've seen them kind of you know do their little walking along the bottom and mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like the fastest way of getting around No, but something else that I saw them do was like because one of them got a little too close to the other one and yeah. it looked like it was shooting I don't know if it was shooting water or what it was doing but it seemed like it was almost like firing a water cannon <laughs> <laughs> the other one. What's happening? What am I looking at? Yeah. So cephalopods have their mantle, which you kind of think of as like, people think of it as their head, but like, it's almost more of like your torso because it's also where all their organs are located. They'll pull water in through their mantle and then they'll expel it out of their siphon. Um, and it's sort of in like the, if their eyes are on like the top of their body, the siphon's kind of in the back and they can like expel a ton of water out of it and really like jet backwards. And so jetting backwards is kind of almost like an escape mechanism for them. So like they can move really fast if they have to. And then that's just like also another way that they can get around. I mean, with flamboyant cuttlefish, they do use like their little arms and their little butt papillae as little arms and legs. But, you know, they also have they have a little fin around their body that they can also maneuver to sort of move around. So they have a couple different ways that they can get around. I'm just amazed that they came up. I mean, they didn't really come up with it. I mean, like evolution just kind of got <laughs> a little lucky, but like what a lucky little mechanism they came up with. We should all think of ourselves as just being evolutionarily lucky. <laughs> Honestly, it's really incredible that we all got here just like from random chance and like billions and millions of years of trying things and failing and then something worked. <laughs> and really, I think that's just like life in general. <laughs> hey there, we are going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of our friends on the Maximum Fun Network. When we get back, we're talking ingenuity and aesthetics for cuttlefish. So stay right here. I'm Yucky Jessica. I'm Chuck Crudsworth. And this is Terrible. Terrible, a podcast where we talk about things we hate that are awful. 
wonderful. Today we're discussing Wonderful, a podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. Those Rachel and Griffin McElroy, a real-life married couple, Yuck. discuss a wide range of topics, music, video games, poetry, snacks. But I hate all that stuff. I know you do, Yucky Jessica. It comes out every Wednesday, the worst day of the week, wherever you download your podcasts. For our next topic, we're talking Fiona, the baby hippo from the Cincinnati Zoo. I hate this little hippo. Hey, when you listen to podcasts, it really just comes down to whether or not you like the sound of everyone's voices. My voice is one of the sounds you'll hear on the podcast Dr. Game Show. And this is the voice of co-host and fearless leader Joe Firestone. This is a podcast where we play games submitted by listeners and we play them with callers over Zoom we've never spoken to in our lives. So that is basically the concept of the show. Pretty chill. So take it or leave it, bucko. And here's what some of the listeners have to say. It's funny, wholesome, and it never fails to make me smile. I just started listening and I'm already binging it. I haven't laughed this hard in ages. I wish I'd discovered it sooner. You can find Dr. Game Show on MaximumFun.org. These are all like really cool ways that like the cuttlefish has sort of won the luck of the draw, right? Which is like oh, things yeah. that they lucked into having built into their body. But there are also things that they like actively do, behaviors that they do to, you know, compete with each other, get an edge, solve problems they face. And this for us is ingenuity. This is we rate animals on ingenuity. What do you give cuttlefish out of 10 for ingenuity? Oh, 10 out of 10. Like, I mean, they even cross-dress. Like, who? (laughs) (laughs) So explain this a little bit. Speak more on this. Okay, okay, okay. okay. So they have what we call sneaker males. Not like tennis shoes. Not like tennis shoes, which it would be really... But if you you were to put a tennis shoe on a cuttlefish, where would you put it? On each little arm? Yeah, there'd be one on each arm. (laughs) (laughs) So when they're reproducing and trying to find mates, cuttlefish will actually use their camouflage to their advantage. And they have sort of, you know, in the animal kingdom, there's lots of different ways that females choose mates. And one of the ways is, you know, whoever is the biggest and the strongest and the males will fight each other and whoever wins gets the female. Um, but some cuttlefish were not big and strong and they were small and needed a different way to pass on their genetic material. And so they uh, decided to change their appearance to the female appearance. So they cross-dress essentially by changing their pattern to the pattern that the females have because the males and females have different patterns when they're mating. And they sneak right past the males and the males are like, oh, what up, lady? Like, right on by, please. Do you want to come join my other ladies? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like opening the door, like very gentlemanly. And then once he's right by the lady, he'll change back to the male pattern And then he'll, you know, he scores. (laughs) I love this because it is a great example of how, like, you know, people often describe, like, natural selection as being, like, survival of the fittest. But it's also survival of the smartest. Yeah. It's just, like, it's not necessarily about being, like, the most physically fit or the most physically strong or the most physically anything. Sometimes, like, it's just about who mates. Yeah, that's that's all it's about. That's it. That's their entire purpose and their entire goal. And um, the little ones had to figure something out. And they sure as heck did. 
it's such an interesting way of like using what uh, on like first observation would come across as like a disadvantage right being yeah. like smaller a little less like physically like not going to be able to go up against the larger stronger males but they turn it into an advantage by using yeah. this like really interesting trick of behavior <laughs> and like i just want to know how the heck they came up with that <laughs> Like, what's going on in their little head? They're, I mean, were they really just, like, that smart and, 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 like, genius? And we're like, ah, I know exactly how to get my little my little genetic material to, like, pass on. Or was it just, like, randomly somebody, like, changed to their pattern and was like, oh, wait. Oh, hey, this worked. worked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it makes you wonder what the first cuttlefish was going through. I know, for real. Do they have some sort of, like, journey? Is this, like, a little queer awakening or is this just random chance? And then <laughs> passed that on to their offspring. So then their offspring oh, would yeah. be like, well, let me think of this. Yeah, exactly. Because they don't teach their offspring. Like, they all they either, like, watch another male do it or just are like, oh, I have an idea. They all have the same idea, generally by generation are, are cuttlefish one of the ones that like don't raise their young at all oh no they don't raise their young at all there wouldn't be like a generational transfer of it wouldn't be like a cultural th thing right this would just be like something they'd have to independently do basically i mean unless they watch some like another cuttlefish do it because mm. they have like they at least with octopuses and you know cephalopods are kind of like a big group and you do one study on one species and then kind of apply it to the other ones so at least an octopus is like they do learn from each other they can watch like another cephalopod do something and then mimic it so either they're just like watching somebody doing it and then mimic it or they come up with the idea themselves but their parents aren't teaching them anything because by the time they hatch they're dead oh but like one could yeah. have been spying on them yeah one could have been <laughs> spying and then it's like a chain reaction and then like well hold on a second you seem like you've got something figured out <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like they're all just copycats. <laughs> but then it's so interesting that you see this and that doesn't just like become the way that they all do it, I right? Know. Like you still have right. the big strong males that are like doing it the traditional way. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, you have you have your you have your conservatives and you have your liberals even in cuttlefish world. <laughs> They're just going rogue. It's just another example of them just going rogue and doing what you don't expect them to do. Also, like, how how natural is our society when we see it exactly in, like, cuttlefish world? We're like, wow, maybe, maybe this all is just normal. It is a behavior that we can very easily read and relate to and, like, apply to our own behaviors. Yeah. Just because, like, we kind of already have structures that sort of resemble that in our, like, cultures already. Yeah. So we can, like, slot them in and be like, oh, I can understand <laughs> this behavior. Yeah, we get it. We, we understand. We know why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> Because something you mentioned earlier is that like humans are able to look in the eyes of like an octopus or a cuttlefish or something and you feel this sort of sense of knowing and this sense yeah. of like getting it. And I, I have this experience a lot whenever I see like a cuttlefish in an aquarium. I always have a little moment. We have a little yeah. like main character moment where we kind of oh, like, yeah. you I've know. Had, I've had so many moments in aquariums with cephalopods. <laughs> And when you do this, when you get close to them and you really like maintain prolonged eye contact with them, one thing that you notice about them is how bonkers bananas crazy their eyes are. 
<gasps> yeah. <laughs> so they all have they all have different eye shapes, which is so cute, so funny. Um, I love it for them. So cuttlefish have like W shaped pupils. Um, and then squid tend to have like circle pupils, and then octopuses have like little dumbbell shaped pupils. We don't know like too much about like the why is their pupil shaped that way you know like like i said in the beginning cephalopods it's a small field like we've done a lot of research but there's also a lot that we don't know and their eyesight and their pupils is kind of part of it we know that like they have eyes very similar to us that has like a retina and a lens and it has a camera like vision but like why their pupil is that way there's only like guesses there's no real like we have done an experiment and know why their people is this way did it translate to like having really good eyesight like they're probably like going off of eyesight a lot cephalopods are like super visual hunters so they do have really good eyesight they're doing a lot of their sensing with their environment with their eyes i mean also with their arms because their arms have a lot of sensory receptors on them but they have like octopuses in particular i know have like 360 degree vision like camera like eyes um they are colorblind um and so there is like a hypothesis that their pupil shape is what is helping them see color, but it also hasn't really been like, we don't have a clear answer on that. But the pupil shape could possibly be how they're seeing color. You know, living close to the bottom of the ocean or like living farther down in the ocean, not a lot of color makes it down there anyway, right? Like, yeah, what color are you going to be seeing? <laughs> so for the few cephalopods that do have color vision, they're seeing like blues and greens. So it's we think it's for detecting like bioluminescence, which is like what they would be seeing deeper down in the ocean. And so like firefly squids, they are like specialized in blues and greens and firefly squid have tons of bioluminescence like that is their thing is bioluminescence so is it that they're looking for each other or they're looking for like prey they're probably looking for each other and then also predators and prey so it's a way for them to sense their environment because when you're down deep in the ocean like that you know that's kind of the only color you're gonna be seeing it also kind of sets off a homing beacon though right it's like hey yeah. predators <laughs> there's me the only <laughs> thing giving off light <laughs> yeah, true, true. I mean, unless the predators aren't very equipped to see it either. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because like, if yeah. you're down in a place where there's not a lot of light, you might not have specced very heavily into eyesight in the first place. Yeah. So if you're already not really using your eyes that much, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe, maybe a glowing squid could float right in front of your face and you'd be none the wiser. <laughs> True, true. Or maybe it's like blinding, you know, because all of a sudden it's dark, dark, and then there's this bright light and you're like, oh, frick, you know? I've heard of that happening to like sometimes sea creatures that are used to not being in light and then like those ROV, like the research <laughs> vessels will go down and they shine this bright light in their face and they're like, ah! Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah definitely. 100%. <laughs> Which, I mean, I can't say I would respond any differently, you know, like if it's in like the middle of the no, night. No, I think I respond that way. Yeah, 100%. Someone shines a floodlight in your face. You're going to be like, ah. Or you're like driving at night and somebody with LED headlights oh, comes around the corner and you're like, oh my God, the worst thing ever. You're like, dude, we get Can it. Can you not? I see you. Can you not? <laughs> 
I've heard that like marine biologists will talk about how they're like, we don't know if this is a behavior this animal normally does or if they were just freaked out by our bright lights. Yeah, honestly. And it's just kind of like a con to like, this is the only way we can explore and we need light to see. So like, it's open to interpretation, you know? Yeah, we're like, sorry, guys, there's no better way. I know. You know, this experience that a lot of people have of like really, really connecting with cuttlefish, I think is not just driven by the fact that like, okay, yes, we can really relate to a lot of their behaviors. We can kind of look into their eyes and feel a connection with them. But on top of that, they're literally just so cute. Oh, yeah. I think they are. Maybe that's kind of giving away, you know, the direction we're going to go in for the aesthetic score. But aesthetics is the final category that we rate animals on. It's just how nice are they to look at. Meg, what do you give cuttlefish out of 10 for aesthetics? 10 out of 10. I love staring at a cuttlefish all day. I could do it all day, every day. It's not just like how cute they look, but it's also like the way that they move. Yeah. They're just like captivating. The like ribbony movement of the fin is so cool. Mm -hmm. It's so cool. Especially when you're like looking at them and then they like change color like as they look at you and you're like, oh my God, dude. Like even like again, I'm bringing up octopuses because that's my like main experience. But like I look at an octopus and it looks at me, especially like we have a few that are escape artists um, and they... (laughs) They will stare at me and like slowly move towards the edge of the tank and then up the wall and then at the same time changing their color pattern and their texture because they know that I'm just staring at them and I won't realize that, oh my God, they're right at the edge of the tank and are going to try to jet out now. I would be horrified. They know we're looking and staring at them and they're using that to their advantage. Especially with like the flamboyant cuttlefish that I was talking about earlier because I was like taking a little video of them walking along the bottom of the tank Mm -hmm. and I could just see like the colors shifting. It looks so psychedelic. Like they were really working. They really are. They're serving all the time. I wanted to connect your background in art with like the aesthetics of cuttlefish. So like from like the perspective of an artist, has this work with like marine biology and with marine invertebrates and octopuses, has this influenced your own art? Oh, 1000%. I mean, it influenced my own art before I even like started working with cephalopods. Like I just think they're just so like even on like when you break it, like if you take a whole view of them, like as a whole, their cuteness and everything, they're fun to draw, they're fun to paint, they're fun to look at. But then you even go like deeper and you just like take a screenshot of their skin. Like, oh my God, that's like a little abstract painting. Like I get so much inspiration from cephalopods constantly and the ocean constantly. The ocean has always been my main source of inspiration. It's just like a whole nother little world down there. Cause like I have my little shop that I, I make like t-shirts and like prints and like hoodies and things that I've screen printed. And almost all of it is cephalopod related at this point. I think I, I came to the conclusion that like if I'm going to like be selling my art and like creating like, you know, like contributing to like waste on the planet because I have to like make things and that and then that's like more things that are on our planet and more things that could potentially end up in a landfill. I'm going to put a cephalopod on it (laughs) and I'm going to tell you that the ocean is important and we should be taking care of it because... I just, well, like, one, I just love drawing cephalopods. Like, I love putting a cephalopod on anything I possibly can. And I think immediately whenever somebody is exposed to cephalopods, they already are like, this is incredible. 
Like the minute you <laughs> learn about a cephalopod, you're like, this is the coolest thing ever. And so I just want to share that with everybody. I just want everybody to like find this new little love um, and this new little like love of the world. Like, oh my God, they're so cool. They're so crazy. They're so different. And they are on the same planet of us, made from the same materials as us. And like, how can you not care about your environment once you learn about them? Right. I'm, I'm looking at them like, these cannot be the same elements. These can't I be know, the same right? atoms. I mean, they can, no, not the same, not the same things that made them could possibly made us, but they did. And I think that's so cool. And like, what else can we learn from just learning about our environment? Cause I mean, there's also so many, like, there's so many innovations that we learn from cephalopods as well. Like, you know, nature influences innovation all the time. Time. And like with cephalopods and RNA editing, that crosses over to like gene therapy and like helping humans with chronic conditions. And then you look at their skin and you get all sorts of new like technology. Like this has always been a sci-fi dream of mine and I'm glad <laughs> that they're doing it. But like recreating their skin as like a fabric. Wow. And so like there are scientists out there who are like creating color changing fabric that like responds to movement and responds to touch and like changes color. And then on top of that, like their arms are used as inspiration for AI and robotics. Like, I mean, robotics has been using octopus arms as inspiration for their stuff because they are super flexible. They're super soft and they're made of no hard parts. So it's just like, there is so much that we can learn and benefit from cephalopods that I just want everybody to know about. When you think about it, an octopus's arm is like infinitely more adaptable, I guess, than a human arm. We're limited by our hard parts. <laughs> yeah, we're so limited by our hard parts. We have bone. They have no bones. They're like pure muscle and they have so much flexibility. They can just do so much with it. They can do so much. I'm also very excited about like the implications of this like color changing material based on cuttlefish skin. Oh. That seems like oh, really yeah. either that could go any number of directions that could either be really, really cool or really, <laughs> really bad. <laughs> I know it has like so many like military things. And I'm like, oh, man, not us giving more ideas to the military. But like, it's still pretty cool. <laughs> like, that's always was my like sci fi dream. I was like, man, what if we made like an entire like morph suit that could change the color and texture to his environment like oh my god that would be so cool it could also <laughs> potentially be so dangerous but like so cool <laughs> not too long ago i was on a DD live stream for uh my friends that do science and sorcery and <gasps> we were cute. all uh you know had to come up with our characters for this live stream it was a one shot and my character was her name was sepia cuttlethroat oh my god and she was a rogue a sea elf rogue that was based on a cuttlefish i love that you made her a rogue she was a rogue and she had like i think arcane trickster was her background so she had like the oh, yeah. um, the invisibility spell so she could turn herself invisible and like oh it was and her hair was like the little arms of the cuttlefish it was so cool oh that's literally so adorable <laughs> that you got all the traits perfectly for making a cuttlefish into a DD &D character I will definitely be, like, reusing her for other stuff. Oh, yeah, definitely do. I get so into, like, making D&D &D characters, like, based on animals, and that was just a really fun, like, thing for me to do. That's such a good idea. I've never thought about doing my D&D &D character based on an animal. 
I always just like I'm like the stereotypical like little nature girly and I'm like, oh, I want mine to be an elf and like she controls animals and is friends with all the animals. And I'm like the annoying person in the D&D <laughs> campaign that like doesn't want to kill the monster and instead wants to talk to it and like empathize with it. <laughs> I was playing with some friends and my husband was the DM and he had to like institute a rule that was like a cap on the number of animals we could have with our party <laughs> because it was at the point where we had like five different like animals that we just like accumulated and so every yes. time we would come across a new one that we wanted to like befriend he would be like okay which one is gonna which one are you gonna cycle out because you can't Boo. you gotta start Boo. rotating them out because this is too many <laughs> ugh Lame. I just want all the animals. I want them all to be my friend and they'll all help me kill monsters because they love me. <laughs> We've talked a lot about how, you know, your art incorporates inspiration from cuttlefish and how, you know, we're trying to really inspire people to love marine invertebrates and, you know, use that love to really be more inspired to be better stewards of our oceans and of our earth. So with that being said, what are you working on right now? Like if there's any projects you've got ongoing that you want people to know about and where people can find you after this, like where can people follow along with your work? Yeah, so currently, you know, I'm in graduate school, so I'm working on my thesis. Um, but I also have my uh, store that I sell, like, my art and all the things I make. But I also have a monthly sticker club when you join my Patreon. Um, so it's, like, $5 each month, and you get, like, a sticker that I've, like, custom-made and designed for that month that is, so far, all cephalopod-based. I'm on all social media as Invertibabe, like Invertibrate, but with babe at the end. Mostly on TikTok is where I do all my science communication. And then Instagram is like mostly my photography and my art. But Instagram is, uh, there's a dot between in and Vertibabe because somebody stole my username before I could snag it on Instagram. How dare. I know, how dare they. It's not even like an, an account. It's like an empty account with nobody following it. It makes me sad. Sad. the worst the worst i will have links to everything in the episode description so uh, you know anyone Yay. who wants to go through and follow you after this can scroll and click through it has been a delight thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your love of cephalopods with us i think we've probably recruited uh some brand new members to team cephalopod probably some new faces <laughs> in the fan club i hope so i think so <laughs> So thank you so much for your time and we'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening, friends. I hope that the cuttlefish has successfully disguised itself and snuck into your heart. If you liked what you heard, I hope you leave behind some kind words for us in a review on your podcast app of choice. We read them all and it makes us very happy and keeps us motivated. If you'd like to hang out with us online, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord. Links to everything will be in the episode description. You can send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a cool animal you'd like to hear about on the show. We'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their other wonderful shows, like the ones that you heard promos for here today. Day. You can check those out and learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting our show over at MaximumFun.org. Finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music. That's all for today. See you next week. Thanks. Bye.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.